Um, as Gus said earlier in that very unnecessary introduction, I am Jean. I feel a little bit like, you know, when someone's told you about a film and they've really bigged it up and then you go and it's really disappointing because your expectations are up here. So <laughs> let's just see. What I can say to you this morning is that God is living and speaking all the time. So it might not be through anything I say, but you will hear from God this morning. That is for sure. We are going through a series at the moment in the book of Ephesians and we've called it Crafted because we're looking at how we are crafted for purpose. And this morning I'm going to focus on specifically how we are crafted in our work and how we can honour God in our work. And the passage that we're going to look at is from Ephesians 6 verses 5 to 9. Now in my Bible and maybe in yours as well, the little subheading is Slaves and Masters. So at first glance, we might think, well, that's not really relevant because we don't live in a society which is set up in terms of slaves and masters. Paul was writing into the Greek-Roman context of the day where this was an established institution. Maybe quite not exactly what we might first perceive it to be. We probably conjure up images of the African slave trade. It wasn't quite like that. It wasn't based on race. It wasn't necessarily lifelong. There were slaves that were embraced as part of families, and there were slaves that were oppressed and treated harshly. But what he is speaking to is that establishment, and in no way is he endorsing it, but rather he is urging the listeners to transform it from the inside out so that it can be a reflection of the kingdom of God. Let's have a read. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favourites. Paul is speaking to those in authority and those under authority in this passage. And in our daily lives today... It's often in the realm of work that we find ourselves in authority or under authority, in a role which carries perhaps much responsibility or perhaps slightly less responsibility. And we're just going to look at a few things from this passage and unpackage them a little bit to see what Paul is getting at and what he means. First of all, Paul is talking about authenticity in our work. The original word, I love looking at the original words and the original meanings of things, and because the Bible is in translation, there's often a real depth that we miss when we translate it into a language that's not the original. So some of our English words don't quite capture the intended meaning. Paul talks in the passage about sincerity, and that comes up quite a lot in the Bible. 
And the original word is a word, sinecera, which means literally without wax. And it comes from a time when sculpture, marble sculpture, was really, really popular. Now, the issue with sculpting in marble is that if you make a mistake, you can't go back and fix it. If you've chipped off too much, you've chipped off too much, and that's the end of it. So what the Greek sculptors would do is they would get a little bit of the dust from the marble, they would mix it with wax, and they would try and hide the mistakes with the wax. So in order to combat that and make sure that you were getting an authentic marble sculpture without fault, the Romans would put these Greek sculptures into the heat of the day, leave them there, and see if anything melted off. If nothing melted off, they would stamp it, sine sera, without wax, authentic. We are called to do our work wholeheartedly. Do our best with what God has given us. No half measures. Skillfully. We're called to do it enthusiastically. In Romans 12, it says, Never be lazy in your work, but serve the Lord enthusiastically. And the Greek here for enthusiastic literally means to keep boiling. Never go off the boil in your work. And we're called to work with integrity, whether people are watching or not, to be consistent, whether we're doing a task that is seen or unseen. I think of um, my lovely housemate, Becky Webb, who many of you may know, and many others like her. She's a teacher, and she's fantastic at teaching. And uh, last year, she went through an offset inspection, her first offset inspection. But she is a teacher who teaches with integrity. So although she was nervous about this, she knew that she always does what she does, whether they're there or not. And that totally came through when the Ofsted inspector came into her classroom and the main comment that she got was, you really love this, don't you? He could see that she was consistent. And there's an additional command. You notice in this passage that whether you're in authority, as masters would have been in that day, or whether you're under authority if you were a slave, the command is the same, all these things authentic, wholehearted, enthusiastic, and working with integrity. But there is also an additional command to those who happen to have authority over others. And that is that they need to be approachable and fair, that they should not invoke fear. If you are an employer, a manager, if you are in charge of people, then none of those people should be afraid of coming to you. And none of them should be afraid of being treated harshly or unfairly. Now, I don't want to assume that for all of us, work is hard, but what I found when I was looking on the internet for a few images to kind of capture what sometimes happens in work, I couldn't find anything that wasn't cynical or sarcastic. Um, There seems to be a general consensus that work is a necessary burden we're all aiming to be free of. Can't wait until I retire and I don't have to do this anymore. In the dictionary, the synonyms are toil and drudgery. 
I hope that's not entirely true for you today, but certainly I think it's probably true for all of us at different points in our working lives. There are times when things seem exceptionally hard and when we really don't feel enthusiastic or excited about going to work, where we struggle to put our all into it, where we struggle to be sincere and authentic, and when actually, if we're honest, when no one's looking, we just stop for a moment or two. I don't know what your relationship is like with your work at the moment, Maybe you're satisfied and fulfilled in your job at the moment. Maybe you're frustrated and exhausted. Perhaps you're bored. Maybe you see your job as worthwhile and meaningful and essential to those around you. Or maybe you feel like your job is pretty empty and pointless, demanding, demeaning. Maybe you're well-paid. Maybe you're underpaid. Maybe you feel valued. Maybe you feel unappreciated. But notice also that there are no caveats in the passage. Paul doesn't say, work diligently unless you are bored with your job. Work with your whole heart only if you're appreciated in all that you do. Serve your boss wholeheartedly as long as he pays you well, as long as you're treated well. He also doesn't specify that you have to be like this towards other Christians. It's to everyone. It's across the board. There are no caveats. There are no get-out clauses. So then this can pose quite a challenge to us because the reality of work and that ideal of how we should be at work can often be quite difficult to balance and reconcile. So this morning, I'm just going to share with you just a few of the key things that I think God has been revealing to me, particularly over the past two or three years, which have really helped me to get perspective and centre myself again on God. So God's perspective. Let's go right back to the beginning. If we go to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, what we see is we see an account of God working and God resting. He created for six days and then he rested and that is described as his work. He rested when his work was completed. What we also see within that is that God's work was not toil or drudgery, far from it. He worked with purpose. He worked with pleasure. He took joy in all that he did. In fact, at each stage of his work, he stopped, he looked, and he said, it is good. He enjoyed his work. He didn't just create things that were useful, but he created things that were beautiful. It says that God placed all sorts of trees in the garden, beautiful trees that produced fruit. God didn't need to do that. He could have given us a single tree with a single fruit that would meet all our nutritional needs. We eat one a day. Fine. Thank you. But he didn't. He took pleasure. He designed things to be useful and beautiful, and he enjoyed it. And then he rested. Why does God need to rest? God doesn't get tired. God doesn't get worn out. He rested because it's good. He rested because his work was complete. We can see that both working and resting are godly.
And then we also see in Genesis that we are described as being made in the image of God. The image of God. Which means we also are designed for work and rest as a reflection of God. And we are also given a job description. In Genesis, it tells us that we are to be partners with God in stewarding and caring for his creation. Nothing else in all creation got a job description, but we did. Work is godly. It's to be enjoyed, not endured. It's part of our design. It's in our DNA. And we need to be doing it in that perfect rhythm of work and rest. Notice the ratio and notice the order. Work came first. Work for six days and rest for one. That is God's perfect rhythm and balance. Work existed before the fall. Before sin entered the world, before the world was broken, work existed. It is not a consequence of the fall. It is not something that we have to endure. But some of the struggles that we now associate with work are a consequence of living in a broken world. In fact, the two great tasks that we see in the Bible before sin entered the world are relationship, relationship with God and relationship with each other, work and rest. Those two great tasks were the first things to suffer when sin entered the world. But it doesn't end there. We have an eternal promise. And we have a promise for the here and now. Jesus said, I have come to give life and life to the full, which means this side of heaven, we will still get glimpses of that joy and pleasure in work. Because of the fall, we're still going to experience some of the toil and some of the difficulties, but we'll also get glimpses of that pleasure in work. And more than that, we can look forward to God's eternal promise. We are not destined for eternal retirement. I'm sorry if that was your hope and that you were thinking that is where we're going. But actually, one day in the new heavens and the new earth, when we see God as he really is and when our relationship is fully restored, then our work will also be fully restored. We will continually work with purpose. It will be fulfilling. It will be a pleasure. We'll no longer need to balance the toil, with the joy. It will be consistent. Work in the here and now is only a shadow of what it one day will be again. And I find it a real encouragement to remember that hope. Something else which I think can help in our attitude to work is recognising that there's no hierarchy when it comes to work. What we see in the Bible is that no one type of work is more noble or dignified than any other type of work. Now, I'm making um, a bold assumption here that I'm talking to a group of people who are all involved in legitimate work, whether that's paid or voluntary, that no one is doing anything illegal or immoral. And in the Bible, we see God doing all sorts of things. We see him both as a gardener in the Garden of Eden and we see him in the person of Jesus as a carpenter involved in manual labour. 
We see God mightily and powerfully use shepherds, fishermen, kings, queens. We see God using people to transform economies, transform governments, transform the law. We see God amazingly using people that have never acknowledged him to achieve his plan and his purpose. We see no divide between the secular and the sacred. What we see is people coming to know Jesus and more often than not continuing in the work that they were already doing, but having a different dynamic and relationship with that work. In the Old Testament, there's an account of a man called Naaman, who is essentially, he was a governor of a country called Syria, which was a bit like being prime minister. He was second in command to the king. And after becoming, coming to God, he continued in that role. He continued to be prime minister of Syria. But he was very countercultural. Everyone around him worshipped other gods and idols, and he refused to do the same. Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians, continued in his work as a tent maker as he travelled around sharing the gospel and encouraging churches. You don't have to be in an overtly Christian activity to be used by God. No work is pointless. All work has value. And when we start to realise this, it will help us to become free from the dangers of comparison. We'll no longer need to feel feelings of jealousy or inadequacy. We'll no longer be so puffed up by pride because we think we're better than everyone else. And we're no no longer going to feel so downtrodden and inadequate. We'll also feel free to muck in wherever is needed. We won't be afraid to get our hands dirty. Nehemiah, another um, person talked about in the Old Testament, was given the noble task of rebuilding a city and overseeing, uh, reforming the economy, reforming the laws, rebuilding the city. And he gets involved with cement mixing and building those walls physically as well as that task of overseeing it. All work has equal worth. Grace is another concept that can help us to stay free from the danger of comparison Grace means that whatever God has given us, whatever gifts, whatever abilities, whatever skills, it's from God and we didn't earn it. It's free. It's free. And even more than that, grace is not exclusive to Christians. There is a common grace. By its very nature, grace is free for all. And that is how we can see God so graciously using anyone and everyone around us. People are equal but different, whether they're Christians or not. Work is equal but different. Remembering these two key things can help us to avoid the turbulence of our emotions when we focus on on the work itself or on how good or not we might be, when we focus on how much better someone else might be perceived to be than us. Identity and security. This is maybe for some people the hardest thing is to separate 
your identity and security out of the work that you might be doing. And that also is very countercultural. My identity and security is simply and wholly in knowing that I am a loved child of the living God. It is not in my pay packet. It is not in my job. It is not in any of those things. It's simply in him. And that doesn't change. The Bible talks about us storing up our treasures in heaven. No one can touch a treasure that is stored in heaven. Jobs can change, seasons come and go, money comes and goes, but nothing can take away your identity and your security if you place it wholly in him. When the first disciples initially met Jesus, they left their job of fishing for that season after the biggest catch of their lives. They saw, actually, that they would have true identity and true security, leaving that behind and going with Jesus. A few years ago, before I moved to Birmingham, God challenged me to do just that, to leave my job, to leave my family, to leave my church, everything I knew, and come to Birmingham, which wasn't as daunting as I'm making it sound right now, because I already had good friends in Birmingham. I'd already visited Oasis on a number of occasions. So I kind of, it was made much easier for me than it can be for some other people. But nevertheless, I had so many conversations with God about this, because the truth was, my life in Devon at that point in time was going all right. There had been sadness and there had been grief and there had been things like that going on. But actually, at that point in time when God said, move to Birmingham, start a new, start a new career, retrain, I said to God, but everything's going really well. My job here is going really well. I'm really involved in church and I'm loving the ministry. It's all going so well. Are you sure you've got this right, God? He was right. And I'm really glad I went with him and I didn't place my identity and my security in what I had there. The next one is community. I love this. Community. We are not called to do this on our own. God is with us. He never leaves us. And he's gifted us each other, which is incredible. I'm part of a running club and I'm not a seasoned runner or a gifted runner but I have come to enjoy it. And if it wasn't for my running club, I would have probably given up a couple of weeks after I started. But at the running club, they have a saying, nobody runs alone. Nobody runs alone. My first week there, it was the depths of winter. It was freezing cold. It was dark, slightly damp. I didn't think I could run with my glasses on, so everything was very much in soft focus, and I was in danger of running into lampposts. And I didn't know anybody. And I was plodding along, finding it really hard, not knowing what pace I should be keeping, whether I should stop, move faster. I didn't know. And I was on the point of giving up when I heard a voice behind me saying, you okay? And I was like, oh, I think so. And then I just ran with this girl who, it was also her first week. We didn't even have the breath support left to tell each other what we were called. We just ran together for the next 20 minutes and introduced ourselves at the end. If it wasn't for that that girl standing by that principle that nobody runs alone, I would have given up for sure. Nobody runs alone.
Our work is an act of service. And the greatest inspiration and role model for what servanthood looks like is, of course, Jesus Christ. It says in Philippians, your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. That is the ultimate expression of selfless love. Jesus came to serve. He didn't come to seek his own interests, but he looked to the interests of others and gave up everything, everything for that. So maybe we could ask ourselves at work, am I principally trying to serve my own interests? Am I looking for my promotion, not regarding anyone around me? Or am I serving the interests of others? Maybe we could ask ourselves, how could I make someone else's life at work easier? Maybe you're in a season where you're coming to the close of a job. And there are little things that you haven't quite completed, but maybe it's like, well, I'm not going to be here long enough. Or you start those things. You do them skillfully. You do them wholeheartedly. And you make the person who's stepping into that role after you, you make their life just that little bit easier. <clears throat> or maybe you're, you have the opportunity for a pay rise and you could see that as an opportunity to be more generous than you have been previously. How can you serve someone else? Or maybe it means standing aside and letting someone else take up an opportunity I was challenged by this recently. Um, at work, there was um, a course that everybody wanted to go on. It was one of those courses that everyone was like, oh, that looks so good. That would be so good for me. And I felt really convicted um, that there were two of my colleagues who should go on this, not me. So I didn't put my name forward, stood aside so that those colleagues could benefit from that course. And the final thing that I'm going to touch on this morning is simple but profound. Actually, ultimately, we are working for one true master. We are working for an audience of one, and that is our Heavenly Father. In Colossians, it says, Whatever you do, work with all your heart as though you were working for the Lord and not for people. This allows us to be free from unrealistic expectations. This allows us to be free to ensure our work fits with the way that God has designed us to be, not what others expect us to be. I'm just going to close now with a little bit of testimony from my own life about how God has worked this out for me. I started a new job um, around two years ago so I trained to be a speech and language therapist and then I started a new job and I very very much and still do feel that that job was a door that was thrown open by God himself there was certainly nothing I could have done to have thrown that door open God made it happen God provided that for me without a doubt and I praise him for that so I stepped into that job 
Only the reality of that job wasn't what I had anticipated. I was treated really harshly, at times unfairly. There were points in which I was ridiculed publicly in front of other colleagues. And I felt this was completely unjustified. And I was really, really distressed about it. On paper, this job was the perfect job. And any of my um, friends who had trained with me, who heard about it and heard about the opportunities and what I would be doing, were saying, oh my gosh, that's amazing, you're so lucky. And I was like, yeah, you'd think. But it was, it was hideous for me in that moment. And I actually felt that the only way I could escape from this job was by emigrating because that's the only way you can justify leaving such a good opportunity and one day I remember being really angry with God about it I was really really cross and I just kept saying to him have you not seen have you not seen what's going on and how I am being treated and the next day I went to work and one of my colleagues who as far as I know is not a Christian took me to one side and sat me down and said, I want you to know that the way you have been treated has not gone unnoticed. God used her to speak to me and remind me he sees it all. He is in it all and he feels it all. And then he took me on a journey to recognise how I had actually been people-pleasing. He didn't change the job. He didn't changed the people around me but he changed me from the inside out and taught me again how to work for an audience of one how to work for my loving heavenly father who sees my heart and says well done good and faithful servant he is the one who knows us better than we know ourselves he is the one who equips us with everything that we need. He is the one who sees our heart and loves us unconditionally. When we can get our heads around that and get our heads around the fact that we are working for an audience of one, then I believe we can have real freedom in our work despite the fact that circumstances may not be as we had hoped. And that's where I'm going to close. Um, And just finally, most of what I've shared and most of the journey God has taken me on, um, I've learned from other people. It's not been something that I've learned by myself. And in particular, there's a book. um, It's called Every Good Endeavour by Timothy Keller. And if you want to press in on this subject a little bit more and be challenged a little bit more, then I highly commend reading this book to you. And like Gus said at the start, if you would like prayer for anything, it doesn't have to be work-related, but for anything at all, and it certainly can be work-related, then please come to the front and myself or any of the other guys here would be more than happy to pray for you.